Hey guys, it's Dr. Cassie bringing you what I know will be a topical and timely Vetfolio podcast episode about something which is on all of our minds, and that of course is coronavirus. I got the incredible opportunity to talk to Dr. Scott Weiss, who's an expert in infectious and zoonotic diseases. If you're like me, you're on information overload at this point, and it's hard to separate fact from fiction and know how best we're to go about our jobs and our daily lives in order to stay healthy and to slow the spread of this novel disease. Forgive the reference, but since daycare closed and my husband and I are both working from home when possible, I think I've seen the new Frozen movie at least 43 times since Monday, and I think Elsa summed it up perfectly when she said we're traveling into the unknown. Man, this social distancing thing is already taking its toll on my sanity. So back on topic, my guest, Dr. Weiss, is a veterinary internist and a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. He's a professor at the Ontario Veterinary College, University of Guelph, director of the University of Guelph Center for Public Health and Zoonoses, and chief of infection control at the Ontario Veterinary College Teaching Hospital. Guys, I'll let you know that in our interview, there may be some audio variability, and that's because we're doing our best to follow recommendations to work from home and stay distanced from one another. So it was recorded via Wi-Fi, not always with the best connection, so bear with us through the interview. Okay, I won't keep you in suspense any longer. Here's my interview with Dr. Weiss. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. I know you've been interviewed by a lot of different sources in the midst of all this, so we really appreciate you coming and taking time to come on our podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So there's so much information and misinformation out there. I feel like we're all trying to figure out and keep up with the latest changes and learn as much as we can about the current state of this pandemic. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you and seeing if we can clarify a little bit of what we do know. It's amazing what we know, but we don't know a lot. Right? We've only known this virus for, what, three months now? So it's really quite astounding that we know as much as we do. But we've got so many gaps on the practical side. That's where a lot of the questions are coming from. Hopefully we can clear some of the confusion up with this and just talk about what we don't know and what we're still trying to learn. So we know the virus originated in China. I think it was like November, December. I know I myself have heard multiple theories as to where it came from, why it exists, but can you elaborate a little bit for us on where the virus came from? still hasn't been locked down completely, but the assumption is it came from a bat. Bats, we know, are great hosts for a range of viruses, including coronavirus, and they were the origin of the original SARS virus, which is very closely related to this virus. So the assumption is that it moved from a bat to a person, probably through an intermediate host animal, and pangolin is one of the leading candidates right now. And then there was transmission to people, more associated with a seafood, or which is really a wildlife market, in Wuhan, China. And then with that, it started spreading in people and, and went from a bat disease to a zoonotic disease to a largely, if not purely, human disease. Okay, so that was the latest that I heard of pangolins in a market in China. And as far as how it's translated from there, obviously we know it affects humans, but we've heard these reports of dogs being infected. Do we know what animal species it affects besides humans? No, we don't know much about the host range at this point. Uh, we're probably going to find out a lot in the next few months, but there are a few reasons we need to sort this out. 
One is just to understand how this happened, because at the end of this, we want to figure out you know, how to prevent it from happening again, or at least how to reduce that risk. So knowing where these viruses are and how they move is important. But from a practical standpoint, in terms of dealing with what we're, we have now, we need to know the range of species that are infected. In the perfect world for us at this moment, it's a purely human disease. Then all we have to do is worry about people. And that's probably the way it is, at least in the grand scheme. But we don't know if certain domestic animal species can be affected. And that's a concern because we don't want a reservoir. We want to be able to know we can completely handle it in people as opposed to having a reservoir in wildlife or domestic animals. So there's some work going on looking at what species might be affected, but it's going to take time to really get a good understanding of that. So what we know from the original SARS virus is cats could be affected experimentally. And what's of greater concern was that an experimentally infected cat could then infect another cat. We don't know if that happened in natural disease or natural transmission. We don't know if there was any transmission from an animal to another animal or a person, but it raises concern that that might happen. Now, if we look at this virus, it's very closely related to the SARS virus, and the virus needs to attach to a cell to be able to infect it. And looking at the, the genetic makeup of this virus, it probably attaches to the same or similar receptor as the SARS virus. And a few species are of greater concern in terms of their ability to be infected, at least you know, theoretically, and cats are one of those, ferrets as well. Ferrets could be infected with the original SARS virus too, and ferrets actually got sick. Cats didn't get sick when they were infected, which is good for the cat, but it doesn't help us understand if a cat might be a source of infection. So we're dealing with a lot of theoretical things right now. We know that SARS could infect experimentally infected animals like cats. We know this virus is close related, but we have very little field work to understand if this virus actually is in a domestic animal. Now, there's one case of a dog in Hong Kong that's raised a lot of concern. Now, this is a dog that was owned by a person that had COVID-19, and the response to Hong Kong was to take any mammal that was exposed to an infected person and quarantine them and test them. And it seems like a very small number of animals were tested and isolated, but there was one dog that was positive, and it had a positive result over a number of different days. And it suspected this was a low-level infection. It didn't have any serum antibodies, so the body didn't respond to it. But because there was a positive test for a few days, it supports the fact the dog was infected. Now, it was probably a low-grade infection. Was the dog actually infectious? We don't know. And we suspect that dogs aren't a very good host for this virus. So this just may be a bit of a quirk of the virus being able to infect some species but not causing a lot of problems. And maybe a good analogy with this is influenza. So human flu can be transmitted to dogs and cats and ferrets. It's not very common, but it could happen. So if I have flu and I cough on my dog or I touch his face with my contaminated hands, he could theoretically get influenza, but we typically consider them to be a dead-end host. It's not canine flu. It's not their flu. It's not a virus that's adapted to live in the dog. So it can cause an infection, but they probably don't transmit it any further. So again, that's the hope here is that this is a purely human disease or that if it gets into animals, it's not an animal adapted disease so they can't transmit it. But until we understand more about it, we're going on the assumption that there might be some degree of risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, until we understand more about it, because it's such an emerging pathogen at this moment. Did the dog who did test positive for what we believe is a low-grade infection, did it show any symptoms? If a dog were to become infected with a coronavirus, are there any particular symptoms that could be associated? I mean, have our 
run-of-the-mill kennel cough patients become corona suspects at this point, or you remained asymptomatic the whole time? Yeah, we really don't know, but most likely an infected dog isn't going to have signs of disease. If you know, we look back to the original SARS virus, cats could get infected, they didn't get sick. Dogs we don't know much about, but they're predicted to be less amenable a host than a cat. So I don't think we need to be worrying about this virus with our typical kennel cough cases. Well, that's good news for sure. Uh, so am I hearing you right in that we're kind of assuming dogs are dead-end hosts? So my question primarily centering around testing, obviously there's limited testing available in the United States right now, so we need to stay focused on humans. But if a test were to become widely available, would there be any merit to testing our pets as well? Well, we're actually trying to dissuade testing at this point. A few labs are bringing testing online, so it's possible to get animals tested. But there are a few reasons we don't want to do it. Um, it just doesn't really change things in a lot of situations. So testing is part of surveillance to help us understand if this virus is moving between animals and people. That's what we need testing for. We don't want your average dog owner or cat owner to come into a vet clinic and say, test my dog for COVID-19 because I'm freaked out. Uh, it just isn't something that's going to change what you do. Now, there might be situations where we're following a household or trying to explain a human infection and testing the animal might be worthwhile. But routine testing of pets doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing is if someone has enough concern to say, yeah, I need to test this dog or this cat because I think it has this virus, then we need to be thinking about how we handle that dog or cat. Because if we have enough reason to think we should test them because they might be infected, we should be handling them as if they're infected which means an enhanced degree of personal protective equipment precautions compared to what we would usually do. What we'd rather have, if someone thinks their dog or their cat's been exposed, just keep them in the household, keep them away from everyone else as long as they're healthy, and they wouldn't need to worry about it. The less animals have contact with people with this virus and the less exposed animals have contact with other people, the less risk overall. So it sounds like if you are testing positive, then the best thing to do is, is exactly what you said, stay away from your pet as much as possible. Any other specific recommendations for either owners who are self-quarantined or people who are worried about their pets? Well, it's really a pets or people too type approach to it. So if you've been exposed and you're staying away from other people, stay away from animals as well. So if you've been exposed and you haven't been hanging around an animal, around an animal, stay away from that animal. If you've been exposed and you've been living with your dog or your cat, well, we can consider them potentially exposed, and let's just keep them inside. So if, if I'm exposed and I'm staying away from people for two weeks, well, I might as well keep my dog and cat away from people for two weeks. It's easier to prevent a problem than have to think about it. So if we reduce animal exposure and we reduce those exposed animals having contact with someone else, then we really don't have to worry about it. So largely it's a matter of thinking about how would you treat your spouse or your child, and let's treat the animal the same way in terms of how we interact with them and how we isolate them. Kind of like the recommendations that they're giving a lot of us here in the States. I don't know if you guys are hearing the same thing, just to act like you do have the virus and act like everybody around you does and to use those guidelines for distancing and things like that. Yeah, a lot of it's common sense, but we sometimes forget about it, right? So I could be <laughs> so self-isolating. And I can stay in the basement, you know, stay away from my family, or if I'm around them, I can wear a mask. But if we don't mention the animal side, well, I could be down there, my cat comes down, he jumps on my lap, and I cough on him, my dog runs up and down and licks my face, or anything like that. And we sometimes forget about the animal component. So it's really common sense, but it's reinforcing, you know, stay away from everything with a pulse. Not just stay away from people, any animal, human, let's just distance ourselves for a little bit if we're exposed. 
Right, right. That makes sense. So let's pivot real quick into veterinarians. Uh, what the heck do we do when it comes to treating these animals? So first of all, not taking into account the owner and the human exposure level, how much risk would you say the average dog or cat patient that we would see in a clinic would pose to the staff? Well, your average dog or cat you see in a clinic or you see walking down the street, they're probably essentially no risk. The risk from them is going to be lots of other things like Campylobacter and Pasteurella in their mouth. It's not going to be COVID-19. So, you know, it has to get into an animal from a person. And if that animal doesn't have known contact with an infected person, it's probably got to be fairly close and long-term contact. Then that animal doesn't pose a risk to us. The owners are a bigger risk to us than the animals in your general encounter. From the animal side, what we're worried about is animals that are living with infected people. And then we've got two different things that we're concerned about. One is just the animal as a vector or a fomite. So the hair coat gets contaminated because someone coughs on them or pets them. It's a virus that can live for a, for a little while. It doesn't live for days and weeks like parvo. But, you know, hours, maybe a few days, it could survive on the hair coat. We just don't know at this point. And that's maybe the most realistic concern. The other concern is obviously the animal might be infected. It's probably a greater concern with cats and ferrets than it is dogs. But we just don't know at this point. So if an animal's been living with an infected person for a little while, we have to consider the potential that they're infected and maybe the greater potential that they've got some on their hair coat. Sure, and are potentially acting as a fomite coming into the clinic and transmitting the virus that way. Yeah, I worry about them coming in and just us picking it up through normal contact. So the owner's petted it before it left the house, and then we pet it when it gets here, and we don't wash our hands. Um, The infection side is certainly something that that we're paying attention to. It's a lower risk thing, but working around the animal space, we spend a lot of time having close contact and potentially aerosol contact, especially with dogs that are panting and when we're close, close to their face. So there are some theoretical risks on the, you know, very low chance an animal is infected. Sure. So let's go back to the owners for a second. We're hearing so much about this term social distancing. Can you talk to us a little bit about translating that into a clinic setting? How do we effectively social distance but still run our veterinary clinics? It sounds daunting, but there are a lot of things that we can do to really reduce that risk. So social distancing, we're trying to decrease the number of human-to-human contacts, and we're trying to make them more distant. So less contact, very close, less physical contact. And there are a lot of things that we can do in a clinic to get fairly effective social distancing without being very disruptive. It's a change in how we do things, but it doesn't mean we need to stop doing things. So things such as closing the waiting rooms. Waiting rooms are great congregation sites. People sit around, they talk, they touch surfaces. We can effectively run a clinic without that. So running appointments such as drop-offs or meet the animal outside, get histories, talk to the owners by cell phone. We can just have one point of contact, which is the trade-off of that animal, where we're you know, fairly distant from the owner, and it's fairly short-term. Little things such as you know, not having people sign anymore, if we can get by without signing, documenting consent in the medical record with us writing it down. If they have to use a pen, you know, disinfect the pen, have them use their own pen. There are a lot of basic things we can do to, to essentially keep people out of our clinics. And then the things that we can do that are, you know, we've been slow to adopt for a lot of reasons, but moving to telemedicine. This may be a big spark in getting more telemedicine done in the future because, you know, some appointments we can't do from telemedicine, but there are a lot of rechecks, certain types of appointments, especially some common clinical conditions that can be fairly effectively diagnosed or managed 
by telephone, by Skype, by FaceTime, something remote where you can talk to the owner, get a good idea of what's going on, get a quick look at the animal. So we can start screening out things like that where, okay, maybe we don't need to see the animal. We can still deliver health care through other means. So that reduces the number of people that are coming into the clinic. If people are coming in to pick up medications or pick up food, that's okay. Well, you call ahead and we'll let you know when it's ready, and you call when you're here, we'll meet you at the door with your bag of food, and we'll take payment electronically so we're not passing cash back and forth. Those are really simple steps that can be done. They bring in another step logistically, but they certainly aren't overly cumbersome, and they probably could help quite a bit. Absolutely, and it'll be really interesting to see how the conversation around telemedicine changes with all of this going on. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot of things that I didn't even think of with owner contact. You know, you think about this staying six feet away, but I certainly didn't think about uh, a pen or something along those lines constituting contact, but it absolutely does. At this point, would, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much here, but would do you recommend that most clinics go to this kind of curbside service model or do we only do that in outbreak areas? What are, what are your feelings on that? Well, I think at this point it's wise for anyone to consider because there aren't many places that are completely untouched and you don't know you have a problem in your area until you have a problem in your area. Um, and you never know if that's going to be, you know, tomorrow, it might be next week. But, but, you know, you can stage some of these things in as well, figure out what's most practical, what's easiest to get into the clinic workflow. But there's certainly certain things like, you know, closing down waiting rooms, drop-offs, getting more histories and communications by phone. That's something that's not overly disruptive, so I think it's worth bringing in. If nothing else, it'll protect our staff from influenza and the common cold. Uh, you know, big causes of staff illness overall. And what we want to avoid is our staff getting sick with anything. Because if we have staff members that are sick with influenza, well, they might be out because they're sick with flu. But if you have someone that has a fever and they've got upper respiratory disease, they're almost certainly going to be told to go home because we're worried about this virus. And the other thing is, if anyone has the common cold or the flu, just if someone's looking sick and coughing in a clinic, you know, that's not socially acceptable anymore. You know, we don't usually like seeing someone cough when you're walking down the road or in a store. But right now, if you go into a store and someone's working behind the counter and they're coughing while you're interacting with them, that's going to be very, have a very negative perception. So there are a whole range of things that we'd like to do to, to reduce overall disease, um, not necessarily just COVID, but they're all related to it. Absolutely. It's made it very challenging as somebody who suffers from bad allergies and lives in the middle of a pine field um, to not cough. And because you're absolutely right, you go into public and you're coughing or anything like that right now. I know I get concerned when I see other people coughing. I'm sure they feel the same way if I were to be out in public coughing. So it's made it challenging falling in the middle of allergy season with all of that going on right now, too. Yeah, you get a lot of dirty looks coughing in these days, which, you know, in, in some ways we're going to get advances in how we manage some infectious diseases, right? We get some, we get some improvements, whether it's the clinic level or the community level, and we'll back off over time because we won't need to be as strict and people forget. But we always take advantage, which isn't a great way to say it, but we take advantage of problems to try to improve behaviors, whether they're social behaviors or behaviors in the clinic. And I think this is going to drive a lot of change, hopefully for a you know, a long time in terms of the impacts we have on our behaviors. Right, absolutely. I mean, even something like the flu, that takes plenty of lives every year. So like you said, you know, to take advantage of it, but mostly to make a positive out of a bad situation and maybe it'll benefit us in the future. So before we wrap this up for the day, any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners out there? 
Well, I think one thing to realize, it's a fluid situation. You know, our recommendations are changing because we're learning more. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's changing because we're learning more and we're getting better at what we're doing. Ultimately, we have to balance a few things. And one is being practical and one is being prudent. So in a situation like this, we're better off erring on the side of being a bit more aggressive, taking care of things that may not be big concerns if we could do them practically, it's better to be more aggressive and back off than try to catch up if we don't think, do things right. So overall, you know, the animal component of this is probably fairly limited, but if it's a very small component of a big problem, we'd like to know that in advance and take care of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dr. Weiss, it's been a pleasure. I feel so lucky in the midst of all this confusion to be able to sit down and really ask some of the questions from someone who's on the front lines when it comes to this kind of ever-evolving corona situation. So I don't know how I'm the one that ended up with that privilege, but I really hope our conversation will help some of the folks out there who may have similar questions about the things that we talked about. Great. Thanks for your time. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview. I hope you were able to take away some points that'll help with the discussion with pet owners and help with those difficult decisions for clinics in the coming weeks. If you'd like to hear more podcast episodes or are looking for CE in lieu of many events being canceled or postponed, be sure to click on the education tab on Vetfolio's portal. Now more than ever, we'd love to hear your input on this session as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free, reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com, visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Stay healthy, everyone.